Welcome to Fierce City, where we will delve into the people, places, and events from the history of the greatest capital city in the world, and our home, London. I'm Satu. And I'm PJ, and we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser-known history of London. Today, we're travelling back to the 18th century to find out about a terrifying crime wave that swept London in 1790. Before Jack the Ripper, there was the London Monster, and the monster's crimes are the focus of our Halloween-ish themed episode. Was it really all the work of one man? Was it, in fact, all a symptom of mass hysteria? We'll hear all about the crimes of what became known as the London Monster, and whether he was ever brought to justice. As a warning, there's descriptions of sexual harassment in this episode, and we are going to use a bad word. (laughs) Our scene is late 18th century London. The streets are busier than we're now used to. Narrower, and full of carts going back and forth. Messengers and people delivering goods. Newspaper sellers and other hawkers. Noise and bustle, dirt and degradation, alongside glitz and glory. The streets weren't paved, and no one swept them. Down these streets, Fleet Street in fact, early in the evening in May 1788, went one Maria Smith. She was minding her own business when a man came up to her. In her recollection, he was short, thin, sloppily dressed and malevolent looking, with a cocked hat on, uh, one of those triangular hats, like in films. Triangular hats? Yeah, from like in period dramas, like Poldark. Oh, okay. If, uh, Poldark uh, for non BBC period drama. I think of that as like a highwayman hat. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's actually perfect. With a strange intensity, this man started saying vulgar things to our heroine Maria. So far, so street harassment. Like most victims of the street harassment game, Maria didn't say anything and just ignored him, stoically walking home while he followed her, still saying gross things. She made it to her own door, and asked the man to go away and stop following her, but he just stood there, grinning at her. Maria was hammering on the door of her house, hoping someone would let her in quickly, when he suddenly punched her in the chest, and then again on her thigh. She collapsed, while the man just stood and watched. The door opened, and her concerned family dragged her inside. They found that a sharp weapon had been used to attack her, She was punctured in the thigh and in the metal stays of her corset. Maria was deeply traumatised by this attack and stayed in bed for months afterwards. Her family thought she might die of the effects of what had happened to her. This horrible occurrence was just the first of the many crimes of the London monster. This one crime in isolation didn't have much of a reputation, but soon this phrase monster started being used in relation to the perpetrator. And at the time, it was quite novel in the context of a criminal. The term monster comes from, as ever, the Latin, which means something strange or an unusual creature. In the 1500s, monster meant extreme physical ugliness or kind of a moral perversion. And it was, in fact, the London monster who started the trend for using the term also to describe criminal depravity. And it's worth highlighting at this point that whilst the monster's crimes sound all too familiar to our modern ear, anything like this in 1790 was quite unusual. It was uncommon for a stranger to perpetrate a random violent attack on a lady of the more genteel classes and in the street. The monster's crimes belonged to a fairly rare breed of activity, which was only actually seen a few times in London history before. 
Okay, but uh, this isn't the only time that street harassment had ever happened. What about Whipping Tom? Well, we can't go into Whipping Tom, who obviously, by the namesake, <laughs> went around whipping women in London. <laughs> but um, I just say it was a rare breed of activity, not it never happened. Fair enough. I just wanted to mention Whipping Tom. Um, I think the reason that Londoners chose the word monster to describe this criminal kind of highlights the fact that what was going on wasn't usually associated with, you know, your common thief or even your unusual murderer. Something weirder, something more insidious was going on. According to one historian, Robert Brink Shoemaker, there's something about the way the monster spoke to women that made him different from the normal crimes. We don't know very much of what the monster actually said, beyond the mildest of his comments, e.g. Damn you, bad word coming up, bitch, I would enjoy a particular pleasure in murdering you, or in seeing you murdered, and in shedding your blood. So either or there, he didn't mind. <laughs> either I'll murder you, or someone else can do it. I'm, I'm easy. Most of his victims wouldn't describe his exact words when it came to the nasty sexual things he said to them. This is the 18th century, we should remember, not the 19th century. So people's ideas about politeness and ladylikeness haven't been hardened into that like super-reserved Victorian one. So these comments were probably quite bad, like, these people were used to bawdy chat. On the other hand, politeness as a concept was coming into existence as an idea at this time. So you're saying the great British politeness wasn't actually around until only a couple of centuries We were ago. not, in fact, born with it on the year zero. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a new concept at this time. Zooming out a little bit here, London at this time was a bit of a hellhole. In the mid-1600s, the population was only 400,000 people in London. And by the late 1700s, when we're talking about, the population was 1 million people. So with overpopulation, barbaric conditions and extreme poverty, chaos reigned in London. The American Revolution happened only a few decades previously, and the French Revolution just happened in 1789, and it was well covered in London, so this imbued the lower classes with much more courage to do whatever they liked. They'd learnt that the powers that be were no longer untouchable. In May of 1789, a lady called Sarah Godfrey was living on Charlotte Street in London, which was then, and still is, a very fancy address. A man began to follow Sarah as she walked through town. He didn't say anything to her, just followed her, sometimes walking in front, sometimes behind, generally making her uncomfortable and hemming her in. She dashed into the doorway of a shop to try and get him out of her personal space, but then he came up to her at last and made some now familiar disgusting comments. She went into the shop to try and get away from him, but he was waiting for her when she finally came out. He followed her all the way home like a horrible sheepdog. Just as she stepped onto her own front step to rush into her home, the man ran up and stabbed her in the thigh. He then calmly walked away. Sarah fainted, bleeding, onto her steps, and when she came to, the monster was gone. This monster-like activity was actually quite a dangerous pastime in the 1700s. Before the dawn of the 18th century, crimes punishable by death were quite few and far between, all reserved for the greatest crimes like treason and murder. But with the swelling criminal population and room in the prisons running low, the number of capital punishment crimes soared during the 1700s. And therefore, by 1790, there were 200 capital crimes, and most of these had to do with property rather than violence. So you could meet your fate at the gallows if you pickpocketed more than just a shilling, or if you went to go cut down trees in an orchard that didn't belong to you. 
A harsh example of this was in 1789 when poor 14-year-old Thomas Morgan and 12-year-old James Smith were convicted of stealing seven silk handkerchiefs and they were sentenced to death. However, not everyone who was sentenced to death was actually put to death. Many of them were deported to America. But when the US got their independence, this had to stop, and London had to wait until 1786, when the Australian penal colonies opened for business. It was really all going on around this time of history. It really was. We're now up to 1790. It's Queen Charlotte's birthday, the wife of King George III, who's famous for his madness. Out to watch a ball in honour of the Queen is 21-year-old Anne Porter. She was an ordinary girl, whose father ran a hotel and bathhouse. While the aristocrats danced in silk gowns and coats in the ballroom, middle-class girls like Anne and her sister Sarah could watch from the galleries and have a party of their own. When the ball broke up, in classic horror movie style, the girls decided not to wait for their father to come and walk them home, as usual. They persuaded their chaperone, Mrs Meal, that they should all walk home without the usual male protection. As they walked along, a man walked up close to Sarah's face and said, Oh ho, is that you? That's just to say at this point that later on, spoiler alert, during the trials, the term oh ho was the most outrageous apparently and so offensive. And I can't really figure out why, but the judge was really set aback by even saying that in court. Oh, uh, so I've just said something extremely filthy. All on those air. people listening from 1790 will be really upset with you. Um, at any rate, uh, this man then whacked Sarah hard across the head. She stumbled forwards and ran for it, screaming at her sister and chaperone to follow. They ran to the door of their house, but the man caught up with them and hit Anne on the hip. Then he walked off a little way, then came back, putting his face close to Anne's and grinning at her. The door was finally opened and the women piled inside, with their attacker standing there, and looking in after them so calmly that the girl's brother, who had answered the door, started inviting him in. They were like, no, they made him close the door, and only then did they all realise that Anne's dress was soaked through with blood. She'd been horribly slashed along her thigh and buttock. The doctor was sent for, and he reported that the wound was six inches long and three inches deep. This wasn't the first time that the girls had seen this man, apparently, although he'd never been violent before. They and their two younger sisters had seen him around, and he'd spoken to them, using the most horrible language I have ever heard in my life, which now we know is that phrase I will not say again. This slashing and puncturing of the hip and buttock was a classic feature of monster attacks, which had just been piling up in the years between 1788 and 1790. And Anne Porter's kind of like our final girl, isn't she? If you think about her in the horror movie trope style, she may turn up later. Absolutely. She's very much the slightly more famous Hollywood actress of this story. And so if she's our final girl, who's the great detective? Who was in fact policing and protecting London from all these monsters' crimes? No one. It was nobody. The police, as we know them today, weren't actually originated until 1829, when the then Prime Minister Robert Peel had 1,000 paid, able men deployed to the streets of London, dressed in blue tailcoats and top hats. But in 1790, there was no police force to speak of. Each London parish had responsibility for keeping order in their own district, and so it was at each parish's discretion whether to employ anybody at all to keep the peace. Those who were employed held no official status and were usually tradesmen who worked part-time and only had staves and lanterns to arm them. 
Night watchmen were also employed seldomly, and because they had a paltry salary and antisocial hours, they were mainly made up of elderly men. The watchmen were a bit of a laughing stock, and when they weren't being mocked, they were often in league with the criminals. One place which had a semblance of efficiency was Bow Street Magistrates Court in Covent Garden. The court was founded by several pioneering magistrates who set up their court to prosecute London criminals. They employed detectives who were known as runners, and they were fit and able men with red waistcoats emblazoned with a metal crest, and they had a truncheon. Oh, that's where the iconic truncheon for policemen Indeed. comes from. Um, there weren't many of these runners, though. There were only about six or eight. Um, they represented the best London hat when it came to policing. So, to put that into perspective, that's one runner for every 125,000 people. Oh my god. So, back to the monster. Descriptions of this attacker differ so much, but can be roughly grouped into two. The shorter man with a big nose who grumbles, is that you? And the other thing, at his victim before attacking them. And a much taller man over six foot who apparently wore very long ruffles. It's my fave. So yeah, he absolutely seemed to change shape and size and sometimes tall, sometimes short. Sometimes he was said to have a grotesque image and other times he looked handsome. He also, on occasion, travelled in packs. And rather than the idea of it being different people, most people in London were sure that the monster wore disguises and fake noses. At first, he seemed to only attack wealthy and pretty women like our final girl, Anne Porter. But that changed and one victim, who was a washerwoman, seemed even complimented by the attack as she thought the monster only attacked noblewomen. The first lot of attacks also were fairly common in type, but with the increasing publicity and the number of attacks increasing, the monster's attack style also changed. The slashing was bad enough, but the modus operandi that really freaks me out is this one. So one day a girl was walking along Hoban when a man came up to her with some flowers and asked her to smell them. She thought, why not? And went to smell them. But there was a big pin hidden in them, which spiked her on the nose. Oh, no. And the next one's worse. Another girl was approached using the same tactic, but she said, no, I don't want to smell your obviously fake flowers. The man hassled her so persistently that eventually she just agreed to do it. And she got spiked just under the eye. The man ran off, laughing uproariously. Something about this makes my skin crawl. The idea of things spiking your eye is disgusting. But like an injection needle, and that really sets you off. Oh, I think it sets all right thinking people off. So the crimes against these young, genteel ladies were obviously rife, and no police force was around to try and stop it. So enter stage right, the next character in our horror movie, John Julius Angustine. Angustine was a Russian-born businessman and is today called a philanthropist which I hesitate to say, only because it transpires that most of his fortune came from the slave trade. Well, that will do it, won't it? And I'm going to disappoint you more. Oh, God. He was a keen art collector, but he used a lot of his slave profits to buy famous works of art, and they were exhibited at his house in Pall Mall, and after his death, became the nucleus for the collection of the National Gallery when it was opened in Trafalgar Square. This is incredibly bad news. I'm so sad. Satu is literally cringing. Angustine was generally a powerful man and was mates with the king. Um, he was also crucial in the development of Lloyd's insurance. Angustine took it upon himself to save the women of London from the ravages of the monster. I'm sure this is a completely selfless act because he's just such a nice man. Okay, 
Agustin papered all of London with warnings about the monster, and he offered a substantial reward of £50, which was later increased to £100, for the person who successfully captured the monster. Now, obviously, this was a life-changing sum of money, and so it transformed many common Londoners into professional vigilantes. Everyone knew about Angustine's reward, and he instantly became like the Sheriff of London, with his own private police force operating from his home in Pall Mall. But as Satu alluded to, his motives were questionable, and he decided to visit each victim personally, and he made notes about how attractive or not attractive they were, being most put out if one of them was plain. He also seemed to love this limelight and attention, and he created loads of different pamphlets, uh, with one having a snappy title, An Authentic Account of the Barbarities Lately Practiced by the Monsters, Being Unprecedented and Unnatural Species of Cruelty Exercised by a Set of Men Upon Defenceless and Generally Handsome Women. Defenceless and generally handsome. Not overly handsome, just generally. (laughs) The nature of the monster's victims was commented on at the time and is still questioned today. In Shoemaker's book, he states that some women may have faked being attacked, since it was well known that the monster only targeted beautiful, genteel young women, generally handsome young women. And he quotes Theophilus Swift, great great name, name, his comment that many ladies declared that they were assaulted, who had never been assaulted at all. It made them talked of and brought them into fashion. Thanks, Theophilus Swift, for your input. Of course, in the case of the monster, it's more than likely that the unbeautiful, ungenerally handsome, ungenteel ladies of London couldn't previously get anyone to take an interest in their stories of being assaulted. The further down the pecking order you are, the more vulnerable you are. And that was certainly true for working class women. That's why I don't think this is actually that unusual a crime. I think it's just that it became a media moment and then a public panic. And women took the chance to report their attacks, even if it didn't fit very well into the media or Mr. Angustine's narrative. Well, another example of the arrogance of the upper classes is that they were certain that the perpetrator was also a man of high standing. And this man would apparently deliberately keep his servants in the dark due to their illiteracy. And campaigns begun which focused on spreading the message via word of mouth amongst the lower classes. And this actually had the effect only of spreading the fear and the legend of the monster. The newspapers play a key role in the monster attacks coming to light and being taken seriously, to be fair to them. Although, of course, they covered it for their own reasons, one of which is that the newspapers always love putting young pretty women in their pages, even if it's just a description. But it's even better if you can illustrate them. The cartoons of the monster attacks are genuinely hysterical, but kind of terrifying and a bit unhinged. One is a huge-headed man with staring eyes about to stab a woman's bum with this, like, machete thing. I will share some in the resources on our website if you want to see this for some reason of your own. Newspaper commentators were a bit confused as to why the monster was, heavy air quotes, allowed to go on attacking. One columnist asked why women didn't just turn on him and attack him right back. With the newspaper spreading the word, Angustine's reward also added fuel to the fire and encouraged copycat crimes. If you weren't a wannabe monster, then you were either probably terrified or a vigilante. And speaking of vigilantes, London in the 18th century loved a mob. There were the recent Gordon riots, and during the tense period of May 1790, the mere mention of the London monster could bring about a mob of people ready to go after the criminal. 
These mobs could potentially be more dangerous than the monster themselves, and during one attack, in the confusion, a poor doctor who was helping out one of the victims was accused of being the monster and was set upon by the angry mob. But luckily, just before they tore him apart, the woman came to and identified the doctor as actually being her saviour. Angustine commented, It's not safe for a gentleman to walk the streets unless under the protection of a lady. Meanwhile, other petty criminals took advantage of the confusion and the panic. One female pickpocket pretended to be injured, only to then rob her helper. I shouldn't laugh. <laughs> I just, I tell you what, one reason that this became such a, a panic, I just think people were looking for entertainment. 18th century London sounds so rambunctious. I'm sure the people that were robbed wouldn't have that point of no, view. No, I agree, but like, you'd never be bored. The, while the monster mania swept the capital during these months, ladies took matters into their own hands and arranged for their dresses to be adapted to include copper petticoats. The less well-off settled for placing pots and pans in their <laughs> underpants. You did, but how would you sit down? You got like a copper pot in your pants. More importantly, how would you cook the dinner? <laughs> Meanwhile, men responded by wearing badges, making it clear, I'm not the monster. <laughs> All this hysteria led to theatres putting on plays about the monster to packed out audiences, and the streets were littered with posters and pamphlets about the Great London Monster. So, by May 1790, the attacks had almost dried up, but public attention was at its very height. Many thought that a soldier was in fact the real London monster, because in May, War broke out with Spain, and a lot of the underbelly of London were swept away by Navy recruits, who literally went around finding troublemakers, knocking them out, and then these people would come to on a ship on the way to Spain. The attacks on women weren't over. Poor Maria Smith, from the beginning of our story, was attacked again, this time by a group of three men who came up to her as she looked in a shop window and punched her in the head. I assume there was nothing left of her nerves by now. But she's not our final girl. She would have to be some kind of Tatum character from Scream if you've ever seen it. You love Scream. We're not going down that rabbit hole. After months of raging fear and speculation, there was suddenly a breakthrough. On the 14th of June 1790, the newspapers broke the news that the London monster had been arrested. His name was Rinnick Williams, a young man about town who had been working as a dancer and an artificial flower maker, but was currently unemployed. You may well hmm this extremely circumstantial evidence. It was reported that Rinnick Williams was staying in a cheap and horrible pub called The George in Berry Street, which is near St. James's Park in Piccadilly, which was the scene of several of the attacks. Anne Porter, our heroine and final girl, who had been stalked and attacked by the monster, was out and about with a gentleman caller when she suddenly saw the man, and pointed him out. Apparently she then fainted. Now, a final girl wouldn't faint. Okay, on the topic of fainting, this gets like a lot of criticism from, I guess, London monster historians, all two of them, that like, who faints, basically? When does anyone ever faint? And there's the fact that everyone's covered in like copper for a start, but like fainting was probably more normal because you were super tied into a corset, but also I think it was just like a thing at the time. So I don't necessarily think... These women literally passed out. I think they're using it as a euphemism, right, you might like say. fawning. I think that, they're, yeah, like they're in a bit of a swoon because they literally, they've had a shock or whatever. So go back to our final act run-in. 
Well, she's out and about with her her young gentleman who we'll call the captain of the football team, young Henry Coleman, who didn't quite know actually what to do <laughs> when Anne pointed out this man. He's he's not really the assertive type. So he went trailing after the alleged monster. Henry Coleman is just dithering. And eventually he just thinks, I can't go back and tell Anne that I didn't do anything about this because he wants to impress her. So he follows this guy into one of these houses, which I can only assume is more normal back then because they didn't boot him out. And the man, Rinnick Williams, it turns out, is standing there with a friend and sort of inquires as to why Henry's just barged in. And Henry's amazing plan is to ask him his name and address because then he can just get someone else to deal with it later. And incredibly, Williams actually does give it to him. He is Williams of 52 German Street. Then through the gloom of this poorly lit 18th century house, Coleman suddenly says, Williams, is that you? I think I know you. And twist. It's, it is a twist. It turns out they're like slight friends from being young men around town. And naturally, the fact that he knew Williams a bit really made Coleman turn down the gas on this situation. But nonetheless, he takes him with him back to the porter's house so that he can clear it all up with the girls. Unfortunately, the girls immediately identified Williams as the monster, the man who had been following them and had attacked them. And their mother was not half as dawdling as Henry Coleman. She shoves Williams into a chair with her fist in his face and says, if you move a muscle, you will be sorry. Nice. I love mums. One of the runners was sent for, and Williams was arrested and sent to Clerkenwell Prison, probably feeling quite unlucky to have been caught, and pretty shaken after his encounter with Mrs Porter. The London monster has apparently been caught, and everyone was actually quite surprised that it was this Williams character who was the great London monster, because on the face of it, he didn't look like a monstrous man. Angustine also wasn't convinced and didn't think Williams was the sole culprit. He thought it was a gang of people, but he put that in slightly more grandstanding language, being, There are several of these unnatural wretches, these inhuman monsters, or rather creatures in the shape of men, a disgrace to society, the outcasts of creation. After a brief stay in Clerkenwell Prison, he was taken to Bow Street Magistrates Court to be charged with the crime of the monsters. The magistrates had to hear enough evidence to actually charge Williams, and then he would go on to have a full-blown trial at the Old Bailey later. The atmosphere at Bow Street Magistrates Court was electric, and the court was packed with spectators, and many different victims came in to give evidence. It sounds like it was just as entertaining as all those plays about the monster, and the whole court was erupting into laughter at times, with one witness asking if a hat could be placed over Williams' face in order that she could identify him better. Outside the court, the mob was growing and they wanted to tear Williams to shreds. The next day, the mob was even larger. And a bit like the best show in town, several members of high society came down to witness the spectacle. Williams' case wasn't looking good, and even his own friend testifying on his behalf admitted that Williams was notorious for chasing women around town and bothering them. The hat-related farce continued when one witness swore blind it was Williams when he had his hat on, then swore blind it wasn't him when he took his hat off, then was absolutely sure it was him when he put his hat back on again. The mob almost got Williams on his way back to jail on the second day, and there was this dramatic chase around London. With the mob mounting the horse-drawn carriage and the runners having to knock them all off, with Williams just escaping with his life... The magistrates were clearly going to charge Williams, but they had a bit of a problem about what to charge him with. 
Felonies, which attracted the harsh punishments, were all about stealing and murdering. Any kind of sexual assault or stabbing was only technically a misdemeanour. If he was charged only with a misdemeanour, then it would embarrass the powers that be and give him a death sentence anyway with the mob. We've just heard about how intense they feel about it. The reason why there's this big difference is because, as I said earlier, the law only cared about property. Yeah. So this kind of small attacks, if you weren't ruining property, then quite frankly, you could just get away with it. So the magistrates found a really obscure statute to charge him under, which was based on when the weavers were up in arms back in 1720, and they went around spoiling people's clothing for their own political reasons. It was therefore a felony to cut or tear somebody's clothing with intent. Tenuous, but it would do, and so Williams was charged and committed for trial at the Old Bailey on the 8th of July, 1790. William's brother found it hard to find somebody to defend Rennick, but finally he got him a brief. The judge presiding the case was nicknamed Judge Thumb, as he was famous for a case where he said a husband could whip his wife with impunity, provided that the stick was no thicker than his thumb. Which is a great example of what you were saying earlier, and you're quite right, that private violence was absolutely rife. But this kind of public violence was clearly what people had the problem with. So, to the surprise of nobody, Williams was quickly found guilty and he was carted off to Newgate Prison. In December, he was given a bit of a reprieve as his case had to be retried on the basis that the whole clothes-cutting thing wouldn't hold up. So he was actually, in the end, only charged with a misdemeanour. By the dead of winter in 1790, and a few months since everything went to fever pitch, the people of London probably had forgotten about all the fuss and his final punishment was only a mere six years in prison people would unofficially pay to enter the jail for the thrill of seeing the great London monster. However, his appearance didn't often live up to the rep. The other prisoners hated him and thought he was really the worst, and this may have been because many of the other tough offenders were deported or hanged, so the prison population was more or less made up of petty criminals. So after serving six years in prison, in 1796 he was released. He got married, and then apparently all trace of him vanished but it's theorised that he changed his name to Henry and became a real florist. We'll never know whether Williams committed the crimes associated with the monster. More than likely, the 30 or so crimes reported by the witnesses in the trial were committed by many different men, and he became the scapegoat for the whole thing. It's much easier to imagine, especially in the midst of a panic, that there is one monster among us, and that putting that man in prison has solved the problem. In reality, sexual harassment and violence against women just went on as it had before, without the newspapers shining a spotlight on it. And before we get too down on the 18th century, one thing that really stands out to me from the witness reports is how similar the experience sounds to street harassment in the present day. Each victim took the tack of not responding to the monster, of staying quiet and hoping he would go away, or stop standing outside the house. Many of the crimes were only reported once it became a media thing. We don't walk around in padded petticoats full of pots and pans anymore, or at least I don't. (laughs) (laughs) But their behaviour when faced with the monster sounds chillingly familiar. London streets no longer ring with the cries of the watchman, and we don't have to wade through murky fog when we leave the house. But some things never change. I think it would be appropriate to sum up with the movie analogy we were going for, um, and you'll be pleased to hear that Anne Porter and Henry Coleman 
in fact got married after Henry got the £100 reward from Angustine and they went riding off into the sunset together. Leaving the true hero of the story, Mrs Porter, uh, in the distance behind them. Who had many sequels of her own after. (laughs) Dear listeners, please don't have nightmares about artificial flower makers who stab women in the bum. Take comfort in the fact that crime and violence has in fact plunged since the 1790s, and on the whole, no one will try to spike you in the eye as you go about your business. Enjoy Halloween, and we'll see you next month for another episode of Fierce City. Thank you for listening to Fierce City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and our home, London. And particular thanks this episode to the definitive London monster book by Jan Bonderson. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. You can also email us at londonhistorypodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch or let us know what topics you would be interested to hear about. Or you can tweet us at fiercecitypod. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thank you for listening. Mm